0: Hey, what's going on? Thank you so much for joining us. This is The Venice Voice. On this episode of The Venice Voice Podcast, it is my great honor to bring to you a conversation that I had with my dear friend, Blaine Dolly. Blaine is just a flat badass. He... He's a former extreme skier, base jumper, and skydiver who survived many devastating injuries to come through the other side and to continue to pursue his dreams to travel the world and film it as a cinematographer. We talk about his injuries, we talk about some of the crazy times that he had flying with bush pilots up in Alaska, diving for shark footage all around the world, and what's coming up with his latest projects. But before we begin, I just want to remind you that this podcast is for you. So if you'd like to be interviewed or if you want to talk about a product or an event coming up, give me a shout at ron at venicevoice.com. Now, without further ado, here's Blaine. I'm flying yeah. by or it's, it's, something's it's, happening. the joys of being here at the, at the home studio in Venice. Yep, no lack of people and noise. Exactly. So anyway, I'm here with Blaine Dolly. What's up, Blaine? How's it going, Ron?
1: I'm doing well, man. Good to be back. Thank you for having me.
0: It's absolutely my pleasure. It's so good to see you, man. You too, bro. As always. In- indeed, it is always. Yeah, how did it? How did this happen? We became like brothers, man. It's like some people are just meant to like be friends. I don't know why.
1: It was, it was instantaneous. The second we met, it was weird. It, it was weird. just like it was meant to be. Just like and brothers. It, it's bizarre, but it's very true. Très yeah. bizarre. Très bizarre.
0: <laughs> um, I'm fascinated by you, man, and I'm glad that we had this opportunity to sit and chat because there's a couple of things that I want you to share with us and with me. And I know that you've had some very interesting things happen in your life, and you've lived kind of a really cool life for such a young man. Um, 41. I know that you're, uh, you're forty-one. <laughs> well, that's still young. That's still young. I mean, I know a lot of people out there are listening, and it's like, yeah, that's pretty young, man. Yeah, that's true. You've lived a. You've lived a bunch of lives, and um, probably if you were a cat, you'd have probably. Uh, exhausted a few of
1: them. Oh, my mother said I already went through all nine, but uh, she thinks I got about 13 probably. So, well. And she's probably right. I shouldn't be here.
0: Well, let's just jump right into that then. Um, we'll We'll get into what you do now, but you were an extreme sports athlete for a long time. You were an extreme skier. Is that correct? How I, did you How did you first start skiing? I mean, uh, it was where you grew up, God, right? God, you know,
1: I grew up back in New England and Vermont and Connecticut, and uh, my parents were big into skiing, and from the age of two, they put boards on my feet, and I just fell in love, and that was it. That was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And when how old were you when that happened? I was two. Two years old, Two literally. years old you yeah. started skiing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when my dad first put me up, and... Uh, just throw me down the hill right in our backyard. And, you know, it just went from there, man. It became uh, a, a whole lifestyle, you know, period. It was a great, great thing. It was a great family thing to do. But, uh, you know, I I just... Uh, From a very early age, I knew I wanted to be a professional skier if I was talented enough, you know. But uh, And I did. I charged after it, man. I uh, moved to Montana when I was 18. Um, I was a mogul skier first. and uh, But when I moved out west, I started seeing all these extreme skiing videos of people jumping off cliffs and skiing these steeps and doing all that crazy stuff. And I just knew that I wanted to do that and uh and that's what i pursued that was like 20
0: years ago right like 22 years ago it was like that.
1: uh yeah i went i went pro when i was 20 2021 um moved to montana when i was 18 i moved to chamonix france by the time i was 20 i was uh it, chamonix france is the mecca of extreme skiing or extreme sports period it's the it's europe they don't care what happens to you if you live or die that's that's on you they might pick your body up they might not and uh if and you want to, you know, hit big waves, you go to North Shore, you know, Oahu or Jaws and Maui and, and and in the ski world, you go to Chamonix, France if you want to
0: prove yourself. And that was where I knew I wanted to go and that was where I went. And you went with a whole big group of dudes and you were just a young guy and you went by yourself. Well, how did your parents feel about that? You know, they were freaked
1: out because they know what I'm into. They know what I like to do and they know it's really pretty unsafe. And, you know, they had uh, um, previous knowledge of how unsafe it was because my cousin, who was like a brother to me. He and I grew up in the same house together. He's uh, six years older, but he was a professional extreme skier as well. So he was kind of my idol, and he was the one who opened doors for me in the beginning. And uh, he was my mentor. You know,
0: he just scared the shit out of me all the time, and I just loved it. So as far as extreme skiing is concerned, it's not really competitive skiing necessarily right
1: well there's a competitive side to it there's the extreme extreme skiing world championships there's a tour that. but it goes. wasn't
0: the extreme skiing world champions when when you started right you know when i when i
1: first got there europe was doing some contests um this was back in 1998 um, so there were, there were contests. It just, it wasn't as popular as it is today. It was very much less people doing it at this point.
0: Yeah. You guys were kind of trailblazers back in the day. I mean, there was a couple of guys ahead of you. For sure. Uh, Th- those but guys they showed weren't the way, like, but... they weren't giving away big time sponsorships to guys was, before you guys came along, really. It was bragging rights, man. It was, you know, skiing the first descent,
1: something never been skied before. You know, there was stuff that I did that you know, maybe 20 people in the world had ever done at the time. And that was that was really heavy. It was scary. It was, it was beautiful. You know, and the thing was, is it wasn't just skiing over there. You had to be a good mountaineer. You had to know how to rock climb. And you had to know your ropes. And you had to know how to set ice screws. Because your typical not necessarily your typical run but plenty of the runs we like to do you would have to ski into this crazy Crazy shoot, and there was a cliff at the bottom. You'd have to, you know, set ice screws and rappel down this the side of this mountain, then put your skis back on and do it again. And so, there was a huge aspect of mountaineer skiing that we were doing, and it was trailblazing. You know, there was this this run had never been done before. Let's do it. So
0: you had to find a way to get up there, and well, the nice
1: thing is Europe. They just there's no lawsuits against you know being an idiot. So they built they built the freaking tram all the way to the top. It's the highest tram in the world. The vertical drop is 9,500. 100 vertical feet and it's probably the most terrifying tram in the world man it's you just get on it and you just go oh my god what am I doing up here and you know you get to the top of the mountain there's glaciers everywhere and, and you know interesting enough, uh, interestingly enough um, glaciers move and they breathe and you can hear them you get up top and you hear the cracking and the moving and you hear things breaking off like huge racks of ice falling off these cliffs and going down to the bottom, and It's just a very intimidating place to be, and uh, rightfully so, because Chamonix, you know, is the Mecca, but it's also the Mecca of death. They call it Death Valley because there's an average of about 150 people every winter season that die there. Really? It's that many? It's that many, and it's to the point where they'll have three helicopters all day long. You'll see helicopters picking up bodies, and there's six resorts, and you can see all of them from any which resort you're skiing on, but you'll literally watch bodies just being
0: picked up all day long.
1: And it's, it's crazy. And you get used to it. You start seeing well, avalanches like, that are massive. It's kind of
0: like Yosemite with the rock climbers. It's you know, exactly it's like, what like, it is. As soon as I heard from one of the park rangers, he said, if you see a helicopter, that usually means that somebody fell off or that's getting airlifted out. And it happened all the time because it's like the mecca of rock climbing there. So it was basically the same thing. It's like if you saw a helicopter or somebody was. Somebody was getting
1: rescued yeah. or died or who knows. You know, it, was, um, it was the most terrifying place I'd ever been. And it still is the most terrifying terrifying place I've
0: ever so been. So how do you do that, man? I mean, you know, you and I have done, you know, some cycling and we ride motorcycles and we talked a lot about what it's like to be standing at that point where you have to drop in. I know guys that do this. I know you've skydived before. I've skydived before. I know what it feels like to do something that your body does not necessarily want to do and you have to override your body's reaction to not wanting to do that. I mean, it takes a kind of a special training or just insanity <laughs> to do something like that. I
1: think it's a combo, man. I mean, you know, sitting on the edge of a cliff before you decide to go jump it or skiing down something you know if you fall you're going to just fall to the bottom and die. Um I think what I'm good at or what my mind is good at is overcoming the fears and executing my plan. And that's what it comes down to, man. I've sat every single time I get to the edge, I'm scared. There's no way around it. If anybody else tells you any different, they're lying. But I think why I excel at it is because I can, I can just absorb it and understand it and understand that I accept it. If this is my last moment, but I don't want it to be, but I just, I have to do it. It's, just, it's like, it's like a drug I have to do. It. It's like, it's amazing. I, I can't I've explain. I've heard a it.
0: lot of guys describe it as kind of an addiction.
1: It's it's this terrifying thing. It's the same thing. I have a couple thousand skydives. I've got base jumps, all that stuff, and you're sitting on the edge, and you just have to make those moments happen. And you know, you have these horrible, like horrific thoughts that go through your mind. You know, your buddy died last week. You're sitting on the edge, and go, Jim. This is where my bro died. And what am I going to do about it? Am I going to actually go? Or am I going to chicken out? And I don't know. My friends who have died wouldn't want me to stop. And that was, this is a conversation we had all the time. It was like, you know, celebrate life. and Just keep uh, going. And Just keep going, man. You know, yeah. I've, I've been scared so many times, man, but that's the beauty of it too, man. I don't know. I just love it.
0: Well, there seems to be a clarity that comes over me when I drop into something like that. I sure. mean, with the mountain biking or things like that, when I go up a, a hill or I know I'm going to do a new line that I've never done before, sure. there's a clarity that comes over you. Uh, for me anyway, where you overcome that fear and then you either have to execute or something bad's going to happen. So it puts you in a place or it puts me in a place where I absolutely am 100% in the moment, concentrated and have to execute. And the, the, it's it's rare that we get to be in that mindset in day-to-day life, you know? And everything else kind of seems boring sometimes. Agreed. You know, and, and the thing is, is once you take that leap, it's... Uh...
1: Once you take that leap, it's, um, it's all gone. The fear is gone. There's nothing left but that moment. And you're in that moment, and you know you have to stay in that moment, and you know if you screw that moment up, it's going to hurt or worse. So I don't know. It's living in the moment. It's being present, truly, truly present. And it's something most people never understand or have never experienced, truly being present. Scary or not.
0: That's a whole other conversation that I'd like to talk to you about, too, because uh, this is something that's been brought up a lot with uh, friends of mine and mutual friends of ours about what it's like to truly be in the moment. And for me, oftentimes, or at least I spent a lot of my, my younger life not wanting to be in the moment, not wanting to be right here right now because it was just so boring or I felt uncomfortable with who I was or escaping I,
1: reality. Man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: just didn't want to be right here right now. And, you know, riding motorcycles, bicycles, doing extreme activities allowed me to be in that place Sure, it made it very, very comfortable for me to be in that right here, right now place. Um, and I got, I got kind of, to the point where I wanted to seek it out all the time and I'm sure that that's it sounds like that that's what you're describing
1: becomes a drug of choice you know I mean as a kid I would always walk on the the ledge whatever it was if it was a building I'd walk on the ledge if it was a tree I had to climb it it was getting out of my own head I think I have a crazy head and the only time I feel totally content happy and present is when I'm in that moment
0: yeah that's pretty cool so you had an accident
1: I had many accidents, man. Um, I've had some really bad accidents. So what happened when you broke your back? Um, The career-ending ski injury. It was uh, the worst day of my life and still continues to haunt me. But um, the story alone is something crazy. I don't tell many people about the true aspect of what happened that day for me, but I think it's time to talk about it. Um, There's very few people who actually know about this, but... So kind of as a, as being a professional skier, you you wind up going out and doing photo shoots with cinematographers and ski lines, or you go out for, you know, shooting magazines or whatever whatever it is that day. And, um, you know, back in the day, everybody in Europe knows me as Blueberry, because I used to have crazy punked out blue hair for years, man. So I just, that name stuck, and everybody still calls me Blueberry today, man, but... And so kind of part of it, that was my image. And, you know, we never wore helmets back then. It was not mandatory. There was, I hated them. I didn't even like them. You know, we were like, screw helmets. But um, that year in competition, they, they made it mandatory. It was the first year that they made mandatory. This was back in 2001. They made mandatory to wear helmets in competitions. So that was the only time we ever wore them. I still didn't wear them because it was like you'd put your ski outfit on. You wanted to match your crazy hair. It was just it was an image thing. It was like, who who are you supposed to be as a skier? Like,
0: you know, you're a professional. How do you want to look? And
1: it's it's like being a rock star. You kind of dress up for it,
0: right. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, you match your hair with your outfit. It just, was kind of your thing. It was, you was my thing, man. You were you were called Blueberry. I, was, I mean, how long have I known you now? And I never knew that.
1: I just don't talk about a lot of these things. These are um, that kind of
0: thing could stick, man. Uh, it did stick. <laughs> you know,
1: it it happened when a friend gave it to me, and that's you know before I knew it, that's who I was. So. And uh, I just had birthday wishes from friends over in Europe, and all of them said, happy birthday, blueberry. So, you know, it's still alive and well, just no more right. hair for that. <laughs> right, right, right. So, you know, the whole, the whole thing was is, is um, oh, God, man, it's a crazy story. It's hard to even talk, talk about it. But um, I'll give a little brief. Um, growing up, I didn't grow up very religious, but I grew up spiritual, and my grandmother... What does that
0: mean to you? I mean, I've heard a lot of people say it, and people scoff sometimes, I and I have my own definitions of what spirituality I mean, means. What it mean, for, What does it mean to you?
1: For me, I didn't want to go to church. It wasn't, I didn't want to hear him preach. It wasn't sure. about that. It was about...
0: So you felt to, like you had a connection to something else? Or absolutely. You didn't, you there was a higher it.
1: power. There was whatever you want to call it. And, you know, um, and I wasn't sure about it. I was still very not sure about it. But my grandmother, if you walked into her house, she had a million angels all around the house, and she would always tell me, she's like, you always have guardian angels, trust me, and I was like, okay. I thought she was a little crazy, but I was like, whatever. And the day that I had my injury was the first time that it was, I feel like it was proven to me that there was something bigger. And the the story goes... Went to bed that night. We were supposed to meet a couple other skiers and a photographer. Um, I wanted We had planned on doing some really big cliff jumps, like 50, 80, 100-foot cliffs that day. We got like 11 feet of snow. And um, I lived in a little village called Les Zouches, and um, I had to be over in La Brevant for the ski thing. But th- that morning I woke up, and typically I'd wake up, I'd stretch, I'd eat, I'd get ready, you know. And um, I woke up, and I had this dream where... I woke up, had to have like the statement in my head, put your helmet on, was on in my head. And I was like, What is that? Like I'd never even worn it. My mother just sent it to me. I forgot it for Christ's sake. So I just had this statement in my head, and I went up calling the photographer and I said, Hey man, I think I'm gonna wear a helmet today. And he said, What do you want to do? I was like, I plan on jumping this 80 hundred footer, man. And he's like, It'll look great. Don't worry about your hair. Fuck the image, whatever it is, it is. So I said, All right, cool, man. So I lived uh, in La Zouche, and You have to take a bus to the resorts and whatnot. And so that morning, I ran out of my house, um, got to the bus stop, and realized I forgot my helmet. And I was just like, "Screw it! I'm not running back up that hill. I'm not going to do it." And um, a voice in the left ear <clears throat> said to me, "Get your helmet." I just heard this whisper in my left ear, and I was like, "What was that?" You know. And it happened three times. Get your helmet get your helmet and I was just like I was freaked out no one else was there and so I just ran back up to the house I grabbed my helmet I put my helmet on the back my backpack with all my ski gear and everything like that and took the bus um went and met um a couple other professional skiers and the photographer for the day and we were waiting in line to go up Labre which is uh just an amazingly beautiful and scary mountain um in Chamonix and so We went, we got in the tram, started going up and I started taking my gear out and um, I looked at my helmet and someone in line had poured a Coca-Cola can into my helmet. So it was soaked, it was drenched. Probably some friendship, probably fucked his girlfriend. Who knows what happened that day? I don't know, man. But he was pissed and he threw his Coke in my freaking helmet. So I was like, I can't wear this thing. And so I literally start packing my helmet away and this voice again, get your helmet, put your helmet on. In my left ear, and I'm sitting there, and there's there's six or eight of us in this tram, and I said, I looked at everybody, I said, "Anybody hear that?" And they're like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like, "You didn't hear anything," and they're like, "No," and I'm just like, "I freaked. It was freaky because it kept happening," and so I mopped up my helmet. I put my hat in my helmet, mopped it up, and I put it on. And first thing, we went and climbed this big peak, and you know, there was a couple of us jumping off these cliffs, and. Basically, what happened was is, is uh, I, I missed my mark. A lot of times you, you mark where you're about to launch, right? Because you know there's rocks to the right or rocks to the left, and this is where you want to land. And I would marked where I wanted to launch off, but the sun was shining in my eyes so badly that when I you know, committed to do it, I was offline. And so I was probably 10 feet to the left when I should have been 10 feet to the right. So when I popped off this cliff, all I saw was rocks waiting for me. And I, it was like the last thing I said to myself, oh my God, you're dead. I was like, I'm dead, there's no way. And I hit, and I tried to, I hit right before the rocks. I tried to like stop my momentum, but you're going like 60 miles an hour, man. And so my ski popped off, and I started doing ass over tea kettle, flip, flip, flip. And the third flip, I remember seeing the rock, and head first, right, into the of rocks. I don't remember anything after that for a while. I came to with my buddy holding me, um, we were at the bottom, I'd probably fallen 800 vertical feet down this face, and I was really badly broken up, and, um, my buddy was just, hold on, man, hold on, the helicopter's on the way, and I was in shock, you know, and I just looked at him, I'm like, no, I'm fine, man, I'm gonna, I'll get up and I'll ski, and he's like, no, 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 you're not fine, and, you know, we've got people coming, they're coming to rescue you, and, and, um, you know, it was just a crazy moment. I broke my back in five places. I had broken ribs. I had a head injury. And uh, the only reason I was alive was because of that helmet. And I still have that helmet. It stays with me. Um, and it will forever. But it was the first moment in my life where I realized there was something bigger than me. Uh, truly bigger than me. And it wasn't the last time I've
0: experienced things like that. I think. Do you think it was a guardian angel that was looking after you? I know you, Or it was. do you think it was your grandmother? I don't even question Was she, was she still alive she at the time? She was still alive.
1: No, it wasn't her, man. And, and it was... Just a
0: voice that you didn't recognize.
1: It was a comforting voice that I didn't recognize. And I listened to it. And the only reason I'm alive today is because I listened to that voice. And um, that opened up a whole new dialogue on what spirituality and what religion is and what what this higher power thing's about, and, um, you know, it's been a, um, a lifelong learning lesson of what this actually means to me, and how I look at it, and, um, you know, I'm, like, super grateful, because I was in denial, even in the after, about what I had heard, or what I'd seen, or what I'd felt, and, you know, I was just like, was that real, but it, it was real, it was real, and it wasn't the last time I got saved. In a skiing accident in that town. I survived an avalanche. I've survived some crazy stuff over there. And I never died. You know,
0: it was just a it was a miracle. Like truly a miracle. But um Do you wonder why it's you and not somebody else? Because I know you know a lot of guys that didn't make it. I lose on average three to five friends every single year to skydiving, base
1: jumping, and skiing. Every year. It's guaranteed. Whether it's a really good friend or, well, you know, it's an acquaintance, but somebody who's involved in extreme skiing or skydiving or base jumping, people die all the time. And so, you know, as a kid, I never, I never thought I'd live to 30. I was just like, you know, I'm going to charge as hard as I can. I'm going to have as much fun as I can. I'm going to get crazy. I'm going to drink. I'm going to fuck. I'm going to do it all. I just want to do it all. Because I didn't think I was going to live, man. And um, I know that's kind of cliche, but... But that's truly how I felt. I just watched a lot of death around me, so it was all about living in the moment. And that's what so I tried the re- to do. So what was since.
0: the recovery time on that man? Psh, we man. laid up for months and months, or what? Six
1: months, man. I was uh, I was in the hospital in France for three weeks. Um, they got me stable. I had a body cast built from my neck to uh, to my belt line, essentially to my waistline. It was a, a huge cast, and and I was in it for. A good part of six months almost,
0: and uh, and they flew you back home, and then you recovered back yeah. on the east coast.
1: Yeah, I flew back home and stayed with my folks, and they took care of me. And you know, and um, unfortunately, that day changed my life forever because my body is pretty messed up nowadays,
0: right? Right, you still got back problems, I still got
1: back problems. Um, but you know, I didn't stop doing any of it, I just stopped jumping off really big things. I'd still jump off of little things, you know, 20 footers or whatever, but. You know, I just, I couldn't give it up. You know, my doctor said I'd never do this, that, and the other thing again, well, screw him. He didn't know shit because I went out and did everything again. You know, a couple thousand skydives after that, you know, a bunch of base jumps. So how
0: did you how did you get into the skydiving? I know that the, the ski, the competitive skiing kind of ended after that Com- accident, competitive
1: right? Competitive skiing, it did end after that. That was it. That was the last day. I never, ever got to find out how good I could be. I know I could have been really good, but, I never got to find out, and so the the one dream I had from the age of six, eight years old, was to be a pro skier, and I accomplished that, but I never got to see what I could actually do. You know, um, I got to see it through my friends who killed it, and were in every movie and magazine and whatnot. And I, you know, so it was really it was a major loss emotionally for me too, because I was just a lost soul for a while, wondering like, what am I going to do with
0: my life? Yeah, that's a tough one, man. I have seen a lot of people who are just arms distance away from their dream. And they kind of have to sit on the sidelines and watch other people do it. It's kind of like, uh, I guess it's like the Salieri complex, you know, it's like from Mozart who understood everything and could almost do it, but just didn't have the ability or wasn't given the opportunity to do what he really dreamed he could do. And he, understood what it took and understood where the talent was, but just wasn't able to get to that side of it. And that kills some people. Mm, It almost killed me, man. It almost
1: killed me for sure. I was lost for a long time. You know, um, I'll tell you the truth. I went back home and I got a real job for a freaking uh, sales company and doing, it was, I mean, I was wearing a suit. I was just a monkey. I hated my life, man. I was making a bunch of money, but I was, fucking miserable man and uh you know luckily enough i think my angels guiding me took me away from that man like i didn't just this opening crazy dream that i was supposed to do a hell of a lot more than sales and make a bunch of money and i had the white picket fence i had the cars i had the motorcycles i i was so miserable man but and i did that for about six years and um and then Literally, I had a dream one night and I woke up with a statement in my head and it and it said, you have to film the world. And I just woke up and I wrote it down. I have to film the world. I'd never picked up a camera. I'd never never really even thought about it. I always thought it was a cool job. We got, you know, when I was skiing, we'd get followed around by guys filming us and I was like, that's a cool job. But I never thought about it for myself. And, um, you know, that day changed my life because... The book, *The Secret*. After that statement, I wrote my my dream board, and that was the statement on top. I have to film the world, but like, how am I going to do this? I'm at this time. I was like 29, and uh, with a bad back, and I, I want to go pick up a camera and keep the adventure going. And um, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. Through a lot of hard work, through a lot of suffering, through a lot of poverty. Um, but I made it happen, and I'm doing it as a career today, and I'm making good money, and I I love what I do. But
0: yeah, we'll get to, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, I mean, but I sure. wanted to ask you a little bit about how the transition happened from skiing into skydiving and base jumping and things like that, because sure. you had injured yourself a couple times, and then you injured yourself again, and jumping again. and again <laughs> and again. I mean, I the the, the transition from. Um, extreme sports enthusiast, shall we say, to cinematographer and producer director sure. guy was uh, there's still another Huge big chapter there. Cr- big curve, so, man. I mean, with, I'll with, tell you, I'll tell you, what it was. The, I mean, the skydiving thing. How did that happen? What, I was
1: fucking bored. You were bored. I was like, I, like I said, I put a suit on every day. I yeah. went to work. I had to do emails and this and that, and and what was I gonna do? Like, I was literally drinking. Like, I was miserable. I was Drinking all the time, and I was just. I was just fucking miserable, man. Like, money does not buy happiness. I proved it. Had a bunch of it. Hated
0: it. Yeah, you had a house. I had, a, all, I had everything,
1: other. man. Yeah. I had it all. And it was. I was like, this is not the life for me. But, you know, I, I there was a drop zone uh, about 20 minutes from my house. And I just went to the drop zone one day. And I just started watching these people falling out of airplanes and flying in with parachutes and canopies. And I was always fascinated by it. But, you know, I didn't... Really think I was going to get into it because I did my first tandem when I was I did my first tandem when I was 21 years old living in Montana, and it was cool, but it didn't hook me at that moment. It was literally living this this quote unquote normal life that I just couldn't handle, and um, you know went to the job zone and said, you know, what do I have to do to learn how to do this? And they're like, you got to go to accelerated freefall school, and we'll teach you how to do everything and just start jumping. And so that's what I did every weekend. I started showing up at the job zone and met some great people who are still dear friends today. And, um, you know, they showed me how to, how to skydive. And, you know, the thing is, is, you know, my mother and my father (laughs) were like, what the fuck, really? Really? We're doing this now. You bought the motorcycles. You got like, now you had to skydive and you're still skiing like an idiot. And, and I just was like, that's just who I am. I don't know how to do it any other way. And, um, You know, ironically enough, it was my 50th skydive, and I had a really bad accident.
0: What happened with this one? Oh,
1: man. Yeah, um, essentially what happened was we were in a single-engine Cessna 182. It seats about four skydivers, maybe five at most. And um, where where I jumped in Connecticut, where I was living at the time, is the oldest drop zone in the country, but it's also surrounded by housing like just neighborhoods everywhere. And then there's some farmland. But So the wind was coming out of the, the housing areas. And so that you, you want to jump far out and have the wind take you back to the drop zone. So we wound up going really far out. We had a new skydiver um, spotting the landing. You literally stick your head out the window. You look and you go, okay, this is where we need to be. And so we had a bad spot, that chick screwed up, we got out, I got out last, and I I wound up, uh, once you get to about 5,000 feet, you break away from each other, so you can pull your parachute safely, and you don't hit anybody, and I happened to be the farthest man from the drop zone, and so when I opened my parachute, I looked back, and I'm over a housing complex, and I looked at my altimeter, and I was like, oh my god, I only have about 2,500 feet, to go and I had way farther I knew I wasn't gonna make it back to the drop zone and I just sat there like you're under
0: canopy at this point under or- canopy at this point
1: yeah. staring at a neighborhood with houses power lines and trees everywhere there was no place to go and I just sat back and I said fuck is this what it's am I gonna die today like after all this shit I've already been through am I gonna die today and I was pretty certain I was <laughs> and um you know when they teach you to skydive things like that happen they say land in a tree you know you might get caught up at least in the tree if you hit a house you're gonna fuck yourself if you hit a power line you're dead so find some trees so i found some trees and I, i i wound up going it was terrifying man i just remember kicking the tops of these trees with my feet going i'm a i'm hitting i'm hitting in two seconds and and what happened was not the normal thing that would happen I had dead air underneath my canopy because of these trees and my parachute just collapsed. It literally folded. And I fell about a hundred feet through these trees and I landed on my feet and hit the ground and I heard my back breaking. Ow! And I knew it was broken. I was just like, and I just, I I remember saying it out loud. I'm like, fuck, I can't believe I just broke my back again. And, um, you know, before I knew it, all my friends, they saw me go in I got all these so people, lucky. so lucky, they, you know, so they came to get me, and, you know, they cut me out of the tree, and, you know, I had all this gear all over the place, and and me being the stubborn son of a bitch that I am, they're like, you know, we're calling an ambulance, and I'm like, fuck, you're not, no way, I'm not gonna talk, I'll drive to the hospital before you're gonna put me in an ambulance, man, and um, I laid down for a while, I walked back, um, and then I laid down, and then it got really bad, And luckily, my girlfriend was there that day, and I just said, just drive me to the hospital. And I knew it was broken. It was about a half an hour drive to the hospital. I literally, you know, got to the hospital. I was going into shock the whole time. I could just feel myself fading, and, like, I was in so much pain. And and I literally walked through the ER room where all the ambulances come from. Um, I just walked through, and these two doctors looked at me, and they go, are you okay? I was pale, I was, just looked sickly, and I just said, I was in a skydiving accident, and I just collapsed, I fell over, and, uh, went to the hospital, they, you know, took me, put me together, and, and I realized I broke my back again, and, um, you know, that was, that was the day that really, really changed my life for the second time, and changed my mindset about a lot of things, but it didn't stick, um, you know, I didn't even call my parents, man. I didn't even call my parents that weekend. You didn't I didn't want to break their hearts again. I just couldn't. They were on vacation. I knew they'd come home, and I laid in the hospital with, with my girlfriend. And I said, "Don't tell anybody, man. I'll call my parents when they get home because I'll be here for a while." And uh, I called, and they were just like, "What the fuck is wrong with you? Why wouldn't you call us?" And I'm like, "I didn't want to waste. You know, <laughs> you're having a vacation, man." So. um you know that day. That day truly changed my life. Um, you
0: still base jumped and everything after that, I've, right? I,
1: I, I went crazy after this. But the whole thing was that the, the hard part behind this was is you know I went to my doctor. I have a body cast again, um, you know, and he said to me, "Blaine, sell your parachute, sell your skis, sell your motorcycle. All of these things are gone. No more mountain biking. You're done." And I was twenty, was thirty, was thirty or thirty-one. I think I was 31, and I, you know, for the first time, I said I believed him. I believed him, and I. Uh, let's just say I went into a severe depression and a drinking binge, and just couldn't couldn't deal with life for a while. And uh, it went that way for a while, and um, and finally, I kind of came to man. I just, I said, fuck the doctors. I'm not gonna listen to this shit. I'm I'm gonna live my life the way I want to live my life. And I went out and I did probably 12 or 1300 miles, more than that, man. Like 1500 skydives after that. And I went and did a bunch of base jumping and I went back to Europe and I skied a bunch of crazy runs and I just said, I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. And I have
0: ever since. Yeah. You're a very, very lucky man. You're a very lucky man. Um, Not many people come back from that. And And I know that you have, I mean, you mentioned it before, you've seen what happens with people who take risks. Um, it's, it can easily go the other way. Um, do you, do you believe that that angel or those angels were just looking out for you? Or do you feel like you have another bigger purpose on this planet now still? You know, I always honestly really truly
1: feel protected by my angels, my higher power, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I don't, I can't imagine I'm here. I'm not, I'm not done with this this body yet. I think I have things I need to do, and I'm here because I shouldn't be here. And and those two incidents were just two incidents. I broke and smashed myself up so many times after, in between all of that, you know, between mountain biking accidents, and I broke more bones skydiving, and I broke more bones skiing, and I I just I didn't stop. I didn't stop. So uh, I feel like I'm here for some reason. I still don't know exactly what that is, but I'm just here to. To, uh, I know
0: you've, you've, you've skied fairly recently But you finally sold your skydiving gear I did, man It was the most depressing day of my life <laughs> You know So you haven't jumped out of
1: a plane in quite some time It's been a couple of years, man It's been a couple of years And I think about it all the time I Really? Wish I, yeah I, It becomes part of you Sure You know, when do you get to become a superhero? Every Friday and Saturday and Sunday, right? Or whenever you jump. But it's truly what you do. You get to become a superhero.
0: Yeah. I remember after my first couple of skydives, you feel like you can do absolutely anything. It's like there's nothing you can't conquer if you've jumped out of a plane and landed safely. It's true. And the more you do it, the more hooked you get. Yeah. Because you actually get good at it.
1: Yeah, Yeah, well, it it wasn't that
0: case for me. I think I have six or eight total jumps. That's it, you know? And after that, I was like, you know what? I think I'm done. I I think I did this. You know, I was able to... jump myself and mm-hmm. you know I did accelerated free fall sure. and I jumped out of a plane by myself and I landed and I did it a few times and I was like this is good one time I had a close call where I flared too soon mm-hmm. and it was a good 10 or 12 feet off the ground yeah. my feet went straight up in the air and I smacked down on my back sure. on the ground we all and did it, that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like okay that was not fun yeah. and I'm you know it was just a little bit of a wake up call maybe I'm too much of a wimp or maybe I'm smarter than all you fuckers I don't know mm. but um that was that was the time for me Uh, but there is an interest it's interesting to hear you talk about that obsession, because it is an obsession. And I think it, what drives people to greatness, and it also, it, it's, it's a fine line. Uh, you know, it, it can drive you to greatness, or it can drive you into the grave, like or madness, so many, even. or madness, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's an obsession. It's an obsession. It
1: is an obsession, and I think living life to the fullest, for me, is an obsession, and it's not... It's not getting any easier it's getting harder because you I just want to push harder now and I want to do more and I want to
0: well you've been lift. able to do more um once you started picking up a camera and shooting stuff that took you to some really great places um tell me a little bit about what it was like when you got on that gig um Flying Wild Alaska and you're up in and flying in bush planes all the time. I mean, that must have been an amazing gig. That, and it was just because you started picking up a camera, right? It was, it was
1: yeah. I, I, I picked up a camera and um, had some great mentors, and they taught me. And before I knew it, I was I was doing Discovery Channel shows and National Geographic and what you know, all, a whole bunch of stuff. And for me, it was about, it was just really about, the journey not ending. I wanted to travel. I wanted to explore the world. I wanted to get paid to see the world, and what better way to do it than being a cinematographer? And as I, we hear, as we hear, as small it, planes. That's come, a, that's come a, from a Cessna one eighty two. I can <laughs> hear that engine. I know that one. <laughs> uh,
0: anyway, but to get paid to travel the world. Yeah, uh,
1: just experience things, man. It was uh, Alaska was amazing. I, you know, I spent. Uh, I was in the Arctic Circle. I was living in Barrow, Alaska, which is just an Eskimo. Uh, native village uh, it's the farthest northern bu- northern bush village in alaska and um and there's, there's there's nothing up there but polar bears and eskimos and some oil so there's some white guys up there too but um it was an amazing experience you know i got to travel and fly in these crazy planes with insane pilots these guys are the best in the world and you know, they they even let me fly the planes as long as there was nobody in the back besides us. Like they'd let me fly from Bush Village to Bush Village, and and we did we did insane stuff, and you know got to get to film with polar bears, and, and uh, I mean I got stalked and almost eaten
0: by a polar bear while I was up there. What happened then? What, what was that like? It
1: was it was just one of those terrifying moments. Where you go, I can't believe I made another one. I just uh, how eat.
0: big was the polar bear? They're
1: huge, man. I'd take a grizzly bear and add. Five feet to it and girth you know a couple thousand pounds um it was um so the inuit upiac eskimos up there still live on whale they they literally still go hunting for whale and it gets passed around the village and they're still hunters and gatherers and and so um there's a place that was uh, south, was it? You know, it's east facing, and they drop all the whale bones there when they're done carving it up, and all the polar bears go there when they're hungry. And so, but that's actually where the sun comes up. And so, I got tasked to do uh, a time lapse of the sun coming up over there. And um, so, I went, uh, parked the van, not really that far away from me, maybe a hundred yards, maybe a little bit more, and. <clears throat> Set up a camera, and when you 're that far north in the winter time, the sun only rises so high in the sky, and it takes forever. so shooting a time lapse to go halfway into the sky takes four, five, six hours. So my whole job was set the camera up, you know change out batteries, um, jump in the van, warm up it 's negative fifty almost every day up there it 's the most inhospitable place i 've ever been. And, um, so all morning long I was just, uh, popping batteries in and shooting the time lapse, the sun coming up, and so my scent was out all morning, and like I said, this is where all the polar bears hang out when they're hungry, because they're starving to death up there at that time, and, um, it was weird, you know, I just, I was sitting out there looking at the sun, and it's so unique and beautiful, it's like nothing you've ever seen the, the, the sun in Alaska that far north, and, So, I was probably out for like 20 minutes just enjoying my moment. And I, you know, I'm sitting with the camera and the car, the truck's a ways back. And I just had this creepy feeling that something was there, something was watching me. It was one of those sixth sense moments. And I turned around and there's a polar bear on all fours, maybe, I don't know, 300, 500 yards away, crawling at me. And I looked at him, he looked at me, and I just bolted for the car. And I just. Open the door, slam the door, jump in. I look up and there's a polar bear staring at me through the window. He's right there. He's literally two, three feet away from me, and um, that was the moment I realized how close I came from actually getting eaten. And um, you know, ironically enough, there was two of them. There was another one flanking me, so there was two of them out there. And uh, this polar bear literally—I was driving a a snub-nosed van, so short-nosed van—and and this polar bear puts his paws up on the hood and is staring at me and from two feet away, not even and i'm just revving the engine i'm honking the horn and he is not he just wants to eat me man he's just ugh, you know just ready <laughs> ready for <laughs> some he's, white boy meat he's sta- <laughs> and, uh, and he's standing right in front of the van right, so
0: you can't really drive so, towards him
1: well i did i said screw this guy and i put it in drive and i started driving at him and, he, and then he took off because i was in a i was a big white polar bear in a big white van I mean, right. I was i was i was bigger than him but that was what it took for him to take off and you know, that was just one of the crazy experiences of living in the Arctic Circle, man. And You got to
0: do a lot of crazy flying with those guys. I think that you told me a story once where you had to fly from Anchorage all the way up like 100 feet off the ground or something. You had to go yeah. pick up a plane.
1: Well, it was it was like, you know, we wouldn't work Sundays. Sundays were our day off. And so I would usually go out with the pilots because I wanted to. To fly with these guys and and uh they would let me fly and and ironically enough these guys are insane all of them you have to be the stuff they do is is crazy and they're just they're the best pilots in the world literally and um so I was sitting next to one of the pilots and uh he looks at me and he's like you're flown an airplane and i said no man and he goes you know what that is and i was like that's an altimeter almost skydiver. i know that and he's like what does it say and i said says we're 100 feet off the ground right now. And in the Arctic Circle, it's pretty flat. The, the mountains are south. And so we're 100 feet off the ground. And he said, you know, he, he's like, you know, what's this? And I'm like, that's the yoke. And this is the throttle. And these are the pedals. And, and he just looks at me and he goes, <clears throat> he goes you're going to fly the airplane. And I was like, you sure? And he's like, yeah, but here's the deal. He goes, you can't, if you go above 100 feet for this whole trip, you lose. And I was like, what, you, what? And he's like, you see the altimeter. We're at 100 feet right now. If you go above 100 feet, you lose the game. And he goes, I'm hungry. And he literally pulls out a yogurt, cracks it open, and he's like ignoring me. And he's like, Yoke's yours, plane's yours. And, you know, and I'm just, I'm like, holy shit, you know, we're close. We're close off the ground. And, and he's like, every couple minutes, he's kind of like, go lower go lower man and i'm like we're at 70 feet and then he's like lower and i'm like we're at 60 feet and it's like lower and i'm like 50 feet and i'm i mean you, you it's low man as low as he gets we're going pretty good i mean it wasn't a
0: small airplane it was uh it are you was, going like 150 knots it was a king air i think that's what oh it was. king air those yeah. are pretty big it's big
1: it's a big airplane and um and he was just like you know, he's like, how's it feel to be 50 feet off the ground? It was amazing. It was a rush. And, and, uh, you know, he let me, let me fly. And we were, we were heading into dead, dead horse to land the airplane. And he's like, oh, by the way, you're going to land the airplane. And I was like, what? He's like, I'm not gonna land the airplane. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> he's like, set it up and make your bank into it. And, and I'm like, you're crazy, man. He's like, oh, I'll be fine. It'll be fine." And So I literally, I made, made my bank, made my move. I'm starting, I'm like getting closer and closer to this ice runway. And literally right before we hit, he just looked at me. He's like, I'm just fucking with you. And he grabs the yoke and he takes over. But I almost shit my pants. It was
0: fantastic. It was was just an amazing moment. It was fantastic. Yeah. So that's kind of cool, man. I mean, the fact that you were able to listen to that voice, pick up a camera and it has sustained you ever since and it's basically giving you the in the the adventure lifestyle that you that you wanted to continue yeah and i not, needed not to only...
1: continue i didn't want to i had to it was it was mandatory i just couldn't live this mundane normal life man and i just you know I've been lucky I've been really fortunate i've always had great support my parents were as crazy as they think i am they've always been like do what you're going to do because i know we can't stop you and so they've just supported it and, and i've made it a really nice life and i make pretty good money and i get to travel the world and i make great people and i became something i never thought i'd become and that's that's an artist i i had no idea i was an artist i had zero cuz i always thought art was painting or musicians or i had no idea i really never thought of it in this this big genre oh yeah cinema and all this stuff, and, and, um, you know, I realized that I get to paint with my camera, and I get to paint by producing these stories, and telling these people's stories, and, you know, and
0: you and I talked about this the last time we spoke, uh, I've always thought that you sort of have a soul of an artist, that's, in a way, why I think we've connected, because sure. we're, we're similar in that way, Truly, and, similar, and, Absolutely, and, you know, whether it was picking your line on your skis or finding the perfect way to come in under canopy it is a it's an art form if you're doing it well once you get into an activity like that you i've found that there are places that you can go that are farther and farther and it becomes a creative expression agreed yeah agreed and um I'll just ask one more cinematography thing before we move on to what you're really doing now. You also, this is, it just, it's an astonishing story because you don't get to hear these many stories like this and you should probably write a, a freaking book, but you also went out on a shark boat and became like a diver and started shooting sharks as well, right? So yeah. what was that like? <laughs> yeah, So So how long did you do that? How did that start?
1: I mean, the ocean, I was always fascinated by the ocean, but ever since I was a kid, ever since... I remember always having books on sharks from the age of two, three years old, man. I just, I was fascinated by sharks and motorcycles, but really, really fascinated by sharks. And my whole life, I, you know, we always, we always watch Discovery Channel, Shark Week, you know, and you just, you just, I love it. Like, I literally don't leave my house that week. I'm like, fuck you, don't talk to me. Shark Week's on. And so I uh, I wanted to learn how to scuba dive, and I wanted to dive with sharks one day. I wasn't sure about, like, when that was or whatnot, but I wound up, you know, getting my, suba, my scuba certification uh, when I was, like, 28, 29. And um, I knew that the Bahamas were uh, were is the shark capital of the world. It's, like, truly protected area and whatnot. And well, so, there's
0: great whites in other places they're, they're, if you want
1: to go swim with sharks that's a place because they're everywhere okay uh it's harder to see them out here in california you really have to hunt for them but there they're protected and you know where to find them so you know i went I, no one wanted to go with me so i went to the bahamas by myself and said fuck it i'm just gonna jump in the water with these things and and i did i went and jumped in the water with a bunch of reef sharks for the first time and it was it was Pretty terrifying, honestly, man. I didn't. I didn't understand them to what I do today. Were you certified scuba. I that was. Point? Yeah, I was, but I'd never dove with sharks. I'd never, never even seen them in, in the wild, you know. So, so that was the first time I did it, and I just fell in love with it. And I was super freaked out, but y- there's just this there's peace that you kind of see with these sharks. and You realize they're not these monsters that everybody thinks they are, and. um so that's where it all started going okay I want to get into it now how do I how do I learn how to film underwater with these guys and so I, I just started pushing and like reaching out to people that I knew were kind of connected or through a friend and and I wound up meeting this this captain this guy named Captain Chris Wade he's like the epitome of a real pirate man he's a freak total freak and and he's a shark He's a shark wrangler. He's a shark expert. He's a marine biologist, and he's and he's nuts. And so, randomly through a friend, she introduced me to him, and he—that's what he did, man. He took people out uh, and put them in the water with sharks, and taught them how to handle sharks and manage sharks and all that stuff. And so we we created a. Well, we were hoping to make a TV show out of this. And um, so for a long couple years, um, I was on that boat every second I had. And, and, you know, he taught me how to handle sharks and actually, like, wrangle sharks and, you know, deal with them. And and from, you know, been in the water with 18-foot tiger sharks now and and hammerheads and great whites and, you know, makos. and, And I've just had some of the most amazing... Spiritual and scary, but beautiful moments with these these creatures that get such a bad rap, and most of them, ninety nine point nine percent of them, don't want anything to do with you. There are some angry sharks in the world, and I have met a couple, but that's rare. And um, you know, it was it was great. So I learned how to be an underwater cameraman, and and I'm I still pursue it today. And and anytime I can get in the water with sharks, man, I'm down. I just I love it. It's changed my whole view of what you know ocean conservation is and what we need to do really what it comes around to is protecting our oceans nowadays and without us having the apex predator the 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 dominant shark in these waters uh if they disappear so does our ocean
0: yeah and so with our coral reefs uh, and everything without sharks
1: everything collapses and people don't understand that so you know it's something we should all be aware of and something that we should uh look into and try to be a part of because I hate to say this but in our life we could easily watch the demise of this ocean if we keep doing what we're doing and uh that's 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 a fact that really is a fact and so I don't know man fascinated with them and you know, I just, lo- I just love sharks. They're beautiful creatures, and we need them, so.
0: Well, luckily, you didn't get hurt doing that.
1: No, no. I mean, I've almost had some bites taken
0: out of me, but,
1: you know, you just push them away. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, not today. Not today. Mr. Shark. Yeah. Well, as far as ocean conservation is concerned, I think it's worth taking a couple minutes to reiterate the importance of our oceans and what we're doing to them luckily there are many groups out there that are taking major steps to clean up and to spread awareness about the importance of taking care of our oceans Um, i don't know if it's really making that big of a dent because the forces on the other side are just as powerful the ones that want to continue to pollute and create plastics and dump um so, but at least there is awareness around it. There are a lot of groups of people out there and and coral reefs as well I, The only reason I brought that up is because I was in Turks and Caicos at the beginning of the year right. and there 's a big scuba diving area there 's massive sure. coral reefs out there. they say that it 's comparable to the Great Barrier Reef in mm. Australia, and I was talking with this one woman who had been diving there for 25 years and I asked her what it was like and she said oh the water's beautiful right now but unfortunately going into these reefs is like visiting a friend that's dying of cancer because they're all being bleached out she said 25 years ago it was endless you could swim for miles and miles yeah. and miles in these reefs now there's maybe a 10 mile area that's still alive and the rest of it's just being bleached because of global warming yep. and because of overfishing and-
1: temperature only has to rise about a degree before coral reef starts to collapse and die and and you know once it's dead it's dead um so it's something we need to be super aware of something that people if you want to see the oceans and you want to keep producing food and fish and everything coming out of it we we have to start with global warming first of all second of all we need to stop shark finning because that's what's killing an average of a hundred million sharks a year for fucking shark fin soup that doesn't Tastes like anything it's actually made from chicken broth uh,
0: yeah and they throw the live shark back in the ocean and just they, take the fin it's ridiculous they
1: just they cut it off and they put it back in and they drown because they yeah. can't if they're not swimming they just they can't breathe so you know it's something that's uh, that's, that's really really starting to show um, our oceans collapsing and um, we just need to be aware of it and we need people to like back it and look at it and understand that this if you want this to be in your life, sustainable fishing you know a ocean that's not run by jellyfish or, you know i mean it, it's it's really pretty sad so we need to be aware we need to talk about it and you know we need to get off of fossil fuels and there's so many things we need to do but first we need to be aware and second you know we need to do something about it and contribute everybody well, luckily has to contribute.
0: there are big groups of people out there that are doing things True. about it there's that massive plastic cleanup initiative that's happening there's a couple of companies out there that are really making a big effort to do that type of thing and thank goodness they are you know Um, and really as a consumer if we can act locally and I'll just get off this high horse in a second, but use less plastics. Mm -hmm. Be careful with what you buy and how you use products. Um, We don't need to buy as much plastic. We don't need to use as much plastic.
1: Single-use plastics, gotta go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if anything, if if there's one country that we need to mirror, that's Costa Rica. They are so ahead of the curve right now. They're banning single-use plastic. It's almost totally banned at this point they have a plan to be off of fossil fuel by 2021 um, they're the one country that
0: is really taking charge in this and using well, it's because they don't want to drown because they yeah, see that the right, o- the ocean the ocean is coming up and Shit. they can tell
1: just go to miami man yeah, see the streets are flooding and you know why it's because all the ice caps are melting uh, and... yeah
0: um we it's could scary. we could go on about that and that's a whole other podcast um be aware kids yeah, be, <laughs> the ocean is coming my friends global warming is real and you know we can talk about how, whether or not man is influencing it all you want you can talk For about sure. it whatever you want but we can actually take steps to uh slow it down
1: we absolutely can and we need to and uh I'm not going to get into the politics behind it or who's running the politics behind it, but shit's got to change, man.
0: Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt.
1: Money and greed is ruling this world, and it's going to be the one that takes us all out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, let's let's hope that that doesn't happen. I um, hope so. We'll, we'll see. So now you were... You've been kind of drawn to this area of Southern California for a while. This was one of the... Like me and like you, um, we ended up here on this little... square mile patch of Los Angeles and it feels like home for some reason. I didn't... I just kind of landed here. Yeah. But it it became the place that I call home and you've recently moved back to Venice and you got a place you like your own place for for the first apartment. Come on over ladies. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's awesome.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, to come back to what, what you're doing here, Ron and, and supporting local artists and just creative people that live in Venice. It's, it's a, it's the place to be. I mean, you know, I, I, I always liked L.A. I, I'm a, I'm a mountain guy. I didn't really want to come to L.A., but I also knew that if I wanted to be a true cinematographer, producer, director, whatever, what have you, I had to come to L.A., and the only place that felt like home instantly was Venice. And so when I first moved here seven, seven years ago from Lake Tahoe, it was Venice or bust, and I wasn't going to live anywhere else. And um, I've been here four years, like, you know got with a chick and moved to south Bay don't don't recommend it but uh I'm back I've been back for a year I, I truly feel like it's home and it's a special place it's a unique place you know there's so many freaky people here it's just there's no place on earth like Venice Beach
0: there's yeah. no place like Earth I mean really there's nothing that even close yeah. comes to it man so oh, over time. I have become very connected to this little place yeah. and, and nothing else feels the same. You know, I, I've been to many beautiful places. I've done a little bit of traveling, sure. but nothing feels the same. It's home. It really feels like home to yeah. me. Um, and it just, there are so many like-minded people just of the, you know, 10 or so interviews I've done for this podcast so far. Yeah. The... Feeling is the same amongst all those people. Yeah. They just feel like they've grounded someplace, that, 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 that there's like-minded people. There are people with artistic sensibilities, people with big dreams, people that want to express themselves in unique ways. Yeah. And it feels like that uh, the opportunity is here. And it kind of manifested itself even in the tech boom around here. You For know, sure. Some of the biggest companies were created here. Uh, and, and it's an artist playground. It really, man. it really is. It's I an mean, even playground. the biggest technology companies, and you know, I don't need to mention any of them because well, I don't want but, to talk uh, about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, they were inspired by being here. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's a creative place. So, what's next on on your plate? I know that you. Um, Got together with uh, Brother J.D., and you guys, you actually got a show together, right? Yeah,
1: you know, I think what's so cool uh, about Venice is just the freak show of what it is. But uh, there's a local guy named Brother J.D. He's been here for almost 30 Hoping years. Hoping to get him on the show one of these we, days. We, you know, I talked to him about it. He wants to do it. But he's he's an old-school uh Venice Cat man and he he's a great mechanic and he's a Harley dude and and he's he's had this sh- he had a show on Discovery Channel about cars and and living the Venice lifestyle and the rat rods and all that stuff but he and I created a a show together uh called Wrench Wars and it's it's based out of here and it's 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 not like any other car show out there it really we celebrate the backyard builder the the blue collar nation as brother JD likes to say the people that build these cars with no money in their backyards and and they they get to show them off on our show and um it's a unique show and uh, it's on Mav TV Monday nights at 7 30 and uh it's a really cool show if you're into cars and motorcycles it's it's the only show like it.
0: What's the premise of the show? I mean, there's a lot of car builder shows out there, but is, is it more like a is it kind of a game show format? It almost or?
1: is a game show. It's two guys going head to head with similar cars and uh, cars from the 1920s to the 19. 19- late 70s maybe early 80s and they go head to head and we have a panel we have uh, three guest judges brother jd's the host and we we have a live audience it's it's a trip i mean everybody we promote bring your beer smoke your whatever do what you need to do enjoy your freaking enjoy wrench wars and uh and it's two guys going head to head and and they we have three rounds and you know, first round talks about what they they did. So we, we have uh, one of the contestants go around his car saying, you know, I fabricated this, I did this. So it talks about the whole outside look of it. And then round two, uh, they talk about what they did in the inside. And these cars are some of the most creative things I've ever seen. I mean, like crazy cool stuff. I mean, every car I've seen there is just top-notch and killer. And most of them... No more than spent on these cars five to ten grand, you know, it's going to swap meets it's just it's building your own art car. It's your art car and um, They go head-to-head and then we put them in on a third round if they're tied up They have to they have to fix something like an engine part and they get timed and essentially, you know end of it, you know, if you win two rounds then you win the show and then you know We like to bring uh, the, the major winners back for some rounds later and whatnot, but it's season two unique and cool
0: show wrench
1: wars mav tv and uh seven thirty monday night it's awesome
0: that's, that's awesome man I'm, i wish you all the best of luck with Thank that you. i really hope it's a big hit and you get more seasons out of it i think, we, um, will. I think you, we will you also i mean before we get out of here i know that we're uh we've been here for a minute but uh where do you see yourself going next, man? I know that you you've worked on a couple of features and things like that. Do you want to be a big time feature cinematographer, or where do you You still, know? I'm getting the
1: opportunities. Um, I have uh, a feature film called Destiny, and it's a it's a western film that we're going to be shooting uh, October um, somewhere in the Nevada desert. I think is what we've decided, but uh, it's a cool western. We got a bunch of great actors. Um, so I, I'm doing, you know, a lot more scripted stuff these days. I have a short western film that I'm doing uh, September 13th, and um, and I did. I don't know what it is, but the westerns keep being thrown at me. I did one uh, a couple years ago. People saw it and they came back to me and asked me if I wanted to be the director of photography on it. And so, you know, I w- I want to do narrative stuff. I want to do uh, for me reality TV. My my side of reality TV of what I like to do and pretty much is is you know. Outdoorsy crazy mountain stuff or whatnot cars motorcycles anything with an engine anything Anything that goes fast man, Um, so I'm kind of all over the place I do I do a ton of different stuff from reality TV to feature films to shorts to commercials Um, And it's all different art and it's all different way of thinking and I just want to expand I want to keep growing, and I'm getting the opportunities to go daily and the more the more I'm doing, the more people get to know who I am, and they understand that I can. I, I'm pretty good at what I do, and I enjoy what I do, and and I'm probably one of the easier people to work with, man. I'm, I just don't freak out, man. I'm just one of those guys that shit's blown up around me, and I'm just like, it's all good. We'll fix it. We'll figure it out. No worries. And so, I'm getting opportunities. Um, it's a it's a, it's a dream that's actually come true. It's another dream in my life that's come true and i i can't believe it it's it's mind boggling and i just i'm just getting started yeah 41 i'm just getting started man and it's it's a beautiful thing and it just it brings me back to if you have big dreams You'll never know if you can do it unless you do it, man. You just gotta go for it. And and it's not gonna be easy. It's gonna be really hard. And, you know, a friend of mine who was a pretty, pretty amazing cinematographer, said to me when I when I called him and I said, Hey man, I'm thinking about picking up a camera and he just looked he said to me, He goes, Don't. And I was like, What do you mean? He goes, you're going to be broke for a while like you're going to go through hardships he's like you have to absolutely love this job because the hours are crazy you're on the road all the time it's going to take years to get established and and he's like unless this is just you have to do it i would tell you not to do it and he was right it's been a roller coaster ride but um after you know being in LA now for 6 7 years um it's all happening and continues to happen and it continues to grow and and it's just getting, like I said, it's just getting started, man. It's it's a beautiful thing. So live your dreams. That's my message
0: for the day. Whatever that may be. Oh, Amen, my friend. Do your big thing, as do, they say. Do your big thing. Do your big thing, mother. <laughs> so uh, before we go, you're you're headed off to Montana. You're gonna go do a little vacationing. A
1: little vacation. Yeah, I'm super fired up. We're um, I went to college in Montana and and lived there for about five or six years. And uh, I've got uh, about 30 of my best friends I went to school We rented a big ass uh, couple lake houses On Flathead Lake Which is the most insane lake you've ever seen It's right outside of Glacier National Park So I'm going, bringing my camera Taking a bunch of pictures uh, You know, go hike some trails in Glacier National Park We've got some ski boats and jet skis It's just going to be a, a Just don't f- get hurt, man Fired up It's going to be fun <laughs> Vacation, man
0: Ah, that's great. Well, I will see you when you get back. Have a great, great time. Appreciate I will take it. care of your Harley while you're gone. Yeah, you're lucky, man. This guy <laughs>
1: this guy's got a good deal. I keep my Harley in his in his garage and he gets to use it anytime he wants. Yeah, so.
0: every once in a while we'll take it just to get the battery charged. Sure, you know? yeah. You know, yeah. it's a it's a hardship, but we'll do it. Tell
1: yourself what you need to. <laughs>
0: Blaine, I love you, man. Love uh, you too, I really buddy. do. And uh it's just um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. And yeah. uh we'll do this again, man. I'm gonna have some recurring guests on this show, and I have a feeling love you'll to. have more stories to tell. Well, there's a lot more man
1: so yeah i love to and I love what you're doing and uh come support what Ron's doing with the Venice voice man it's uh it's unique it's cool great people great
0: stories and it's the Venice life yeah thanks for that man and uh if you're listening we'll see you back here again next uh next time with somebody not as cool as Blaine but but somebody else anyway I'm sure that'll yeah. be cool alright Blaine we'll see you next time thanks brother What did I tell you? That man is just a badass, or he's a little crazy, or both. (laughs) Blaine, thank you so much again for coming and telling your stories, man. I really appreciate it. And listener, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Now, before I take off, I just want to remind you that there's a bunch of events happening in Venice all the time, especially on the weekends and this weekend, August 26th and 27th. Yeah, August 26th. No, 25th and 26th, 2018. There's a bunch of stuff going on. On Saturday afternoon is the Venice Art and Music Festival down on the Windward Circle. That's always cool. And then on Sunday afternoon, if you'd like to express yourself freely, as as some people do, it's the annual Venice Topless Day. So... If you want to go down to the boardwalk and walk around with your shirt off or just look at people who do, you can do that on Sunday afternoon. Now listen, as I've said before, if you want to pitch an event or if you want to talk about a product or you want to be interviewed, if you want me to talk about anything or tell me what I'm doing wrong, please send me an email at ron at venicevoice.com and we'll talk about it on the show and and I'll try and do better because like I said before, this is for you. And one last thing, follow us on your socials. And if you'd like to please subscribe on iTunes, Apple podcasts and Spotify. And thanks so much again. And next week, I will have another interesting person who lives works and creates from this little area known as Venice, California. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.